1: I get a lot of questions from people on uh, wanting to pick my brain, wanting to ask me about what I do, how do I do it, all kinds of things across the spectrum. One of the things I try and answer back with is there's a few different ways that we can work together. People can either um, participate by being a buyer, being a seller, or being a partner, and that's really the best way to learn. So, If people have questions that have reached out to me, the best thing to do is jump on www.nicknicknick.com. And you can schedule a consultation if you're looking to sell properties, buy part properties, partner on some deals, or just get a general consultation to see where we can even fit in and where we can do business together on any level. There's options for that to set some stuff up. So please visit www.nicknicknick.com to buy, to sell, or to partner on real estate deals or opportunities. That is the place to go. That is the best way to start making money and learning the process. All right. My guest today on the A game podcast is Mr. Ryan Gibson from Spartan investment groups. And, uh, he was just telling me all the different places that he has. So I will actually let him take it away and let you, uh, tell everybody what type of assets you own and what type of stuff you're working on. And, uh, more important. Yeah, sure. What-
0: yeah, sure. So, yeah. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the, uh, the warm intro. Um, yeah. So what we do is we essentially buy self storage facilities, and rv parks and we operate them directly so we do all the capital raising finding the project and then we operate the facilities directly so we do all the third-party property management asset management and i think what makes us unique is that we do everything from buying the facility raising the capital doing the operational improvements to the operation of the asset itself and then we Allow investors to participate alongside of us in our deals.
1: I think that's awesome, man. So you touched on probably five or six things that we could talk about. <laughs> those things, but um, we met in Hawaii not that long ago at uh, another mastermind type meeting, and uh, there was a lot of other presenters in there, but you stuck out as uh, you know. I I always love people that are extremely intelligent but also funny, and I thought you gave a really <laughs> good presentation. You you kept everybody. Interest. You didn't make it dull, but I could also tell you're extremely intelligent, and you were out there and you're just doing stuff. So, you know, for me, just dealing with a lot of different personality types, I think it's interesting because I do come across a lot of people that will come up to me and they'll go, "I got a great idea. I'm going to do new construction and mobile home parks and storage units and property and all these things." And I'll be like, "You're not going to do anything because you're going to think about (laughs) it and never actually dig in, but you're actually doing all of it." So, a few things that stuck out for me is a lot of other people were looking at res. Looking at multi fleet you're one of the few people that I've talked to recently that are really uh, driving it at home on the asset class of storage units. And I also get a lot of people that always dabble a little bit in mobile home parks. I don't really come across too many people that like it's just that their thing. But I really want to hear about both. But um, you know, backing it up first, uh, what markets are you investing in? And is uh, we'll touch on the asset classes too because I know there's different variations of that, but where are you based out of where are a lot of your projects?
0: Yeah. So our headquarters is in golden Colorado. That's where we have an office and we have, I believe now 10 people working out of the corporate office. And then we have uh, properties in Washington state, Colorado, and Texas. And we even have a deal that we're just kind of money partners in, but don't directly operate in Michigan. So we're kind of in those, those, those uh, three States, but we, target properties on that in MSAs that are fastly growing or have good market characteristics. And those property, those that are investment criteria are actually at SpartanMap.com. We actually look at about 150 different cities across the United States out of the, I don't know, 4,000 cities we've targeted kind of the, the ones that fit our business model, which is we look for cell storage facilities that we can build from the ground up. Or that we can buy with existing cash flow in place and expand uh, the facility with the demand and the pricing in the market that allows us to complete our business plan.
1: I think that's really cool. And again, it's probably one of those niches that if people are very competitive on multifamily or very competitive on residential, you're finding your own little niche that I'm assuming um, there's analytics that go into it like everything else. But are you finding that it's a little bit of a hidden asset that a lot of people are passing over in their markets when they're looking for good long-term cash flow
0: absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) that that was uh kind of the thought was man everybody's talking about you know being an apartment investor and everybody's now a capital raiser and everybody's doing deals and you know buying units and expanding and we're you know so when we looked at storage we kind of thought well no one's talking about self-storage And, uh, in our little like social circles and in our real estate meetups and things like that. And that's just because really self-storage doesn't hold a candle to the wind. As far as how many facilities actually exist, there is about 55,000 facilities nationwide, which is a lot. It's actually more than Burger King, Starbucks, McDonald's combined, but yeah, but the, you know, multifamily, I mean, there is multifamily, there's, you know, millions of properties in the United States. And so. You hear about multifamily a lot more, you hear about apartments a lot more, um, but it's just as competitive or more competitive than multifamily. Uh, When you start kind of getting into the space of self storage, you realize that there are a lot of people that know what you know, and they are looking for good properties. And actually one of the things that they brought up at the economic summit this year in Las Vegas at the Self Storage Association was that 2018 and 2019 will probably go down as the most frustrating year for acquisitions in a space because there's so many people looking for the right project and there's just overpricing in the market, cap rate, compression, and just a oversaturation of supply in a lot of micro markets. So it's, it's been a very difficult year because we have very strict criteria. Like you mentioned earlier, what we're doing is we're raising the capital. So we're accountable to our investors. We're also finding these deals and making sure that they can expand and have the potential to fill up but we're also doing our own market study and what we find is, you know, we look at about a thousand self storage projects a year and we buy about three to four, uh, this year unique. Yeah. (laughs) So there's quite a vetting process. Uh, we're looking for something very specific. Um, but once we kind of, you know, we, that's, what's really helped us, I think grow is that we we're very niche focused. We know exactly what we want. So as soon as something comes across our desk, you know, we can usually eliminate it within a couple of minutes. Um, if it doesn't fit our criteria, and if it does, you know, we're, we can move very swiftly to make sure that we can put together the deal to, to get it done. Um, and that's why we've had a 100% contract close rate. We've actually never bailed on a contract because we really know what we're looking for. So when we see it, when we say we're going to buy it, say we're going to go through with it, uh, we execute. Yeah.
1: Man, I think that's awesome. And You touched on something there that I think a lot of people get in trouble with is the discipline of, of having very strict criteria and not... Really getting emotional and varying from that because you're striking out on some deals and things aren't fit your criteria. So I feel like initially people get a pretty good grasp of this is what I need to make a good deal, and then they'll get 20, 30, 40 offers rejected and go, Well, now I just kind of want to buy something. And especially <laughs> yeah. like the cap rate compressions and volatility out there, and there's a lot of competition out there. Now is really not the time where you want to really get flexible on that because i feel like that's where a lot of people are going to get in trouble so i like talking to people that are successful in 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 any realm of business whether it's you know business or athletics or that that's part of why i started doing the podcast and i found that being disciplined about the right choice or if it's a fight or the right fight or whatever it may be is really an important part of being an entrepreneur or is knowing what to swing swing at what can you give as far as insight for going through that process and you know, how do you deal with that? Cause I'm sure there's times when you're looking at a thousand and you're buying three or four, you know, it, it could get frustrating. Sometimes it could beat you down sometimes and you might want to have that. How are you personally dealing with those, that, that type of struggle? And just, I mean, it seems like there's even more, um, more rejection in your business than there is in multifamily residential.
0: It, let me just say that from experience, it's much harder to have a bad deal in your portfolio and have and be dealing with that, then it is not to. <laughs> so, um, it's really not fun to be in a bad deal. And if you're in a good deal, it's a lot of fun. And it's, I know it's frustrating when you're looking at, you know, lots and lots of properties and your criteria is strong and you're sticking to your guns, but stick to your guns because, you know, it, you know, it's just something that if you start swaying on your criteria and you get into a bad project, there's tons of downstream effects. Number one, you're not going to be looking for any more projects anymore because now you're going to be tending to your bad deal. Number two, the investors that you brought along for that bad deal, uh, now don't trust that the next deal you bring them is going to be any good. You know. Number three, now you thought you were unmotivated before, now you're really not motivated because <laughs> you're spending all this time on a property and trying to sell, you know, trying to solve issues with that versus growing your company and growing your business. So you really have to stick to your guns and make mistakes and fail fast, because you know, what happens is, is you, if you don't have that criteria, then you're just going to be buying whatever. And, and then you're, or maybe you get a great deal and it's just too small of a deal. And now you're spending a lot of time managing it. You know, that's why we don't look at anything less than 20,000 square feet, because, We don't want to be in the business of running a a storage facility. We want to be in the business of buying good ones that have great returns that we can put frontline management at. And if, you know, if we can justify that in the financials, then we can hire a frontline employee. Now we have resources that we can rely on to run that business. And it becomes more passive in that sense, um, you know, because we have somebody who can actually work the front desk and take care of the facility. But if you're, you you know, I used to get, you know, a lot of emails from people and they say, hey, look at this. Look at. This uh, five thousand square foot facility in the middle of nowhere, and it's got eighty units, and isn't this great? It's so cheap, you know. It's two hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand, and you know. And I just think, oh my god, what a nightmare! I'm going to have to drive to it, and you know, it's going to make you know fifty bucks a month or whatever it's going to make me after I pay all my expenses and debt. And so you just, it's a balance of like a good project. What is worth your time? Coming up with an investment thesis, and let me tell you, it is really, really frustrating, and I have to give compliments to my business partner, Scott, who has high priorities or high, uh, um, you know, standards for Spartan as the CEO to make sure that we're not making any bad decisions. Um, And then, you know, even though our, you know, to the demise of our acquisitions team, Ben, um, you know, it's frustrating because you see all these deals, you go through them all, you're trying to make it work and you just, you know, the diamonds are are definitely in the rough there. Um, And it's, you know, it's frustrating and it's difficult, but then it's super rewarding. When you start getting good deals in your portfolio, they start cash flowing to your investors, people get excited. They tell other people and you start having good performance and good success. And then you just become, you kind of have this aura of being a due diligent, good deal, good communicative company. Cause you can really focus, uh, because you've put the right deals in your portfolio. So.
1: I think that's awesome, man. That, that's, that's huge. Um, you, you reminded me of a couple of things there too. So now touching on the teams, what types of teams do you have in place for that or for your business in general? Cause it looks like you have a couple of different, obviously you have your property management, you have your construction, but as far as an acquisitions team, what are you doing for something like that? Cause again, they're, they're working a lot and they're only seeing a handful of deals a year. Um, and the second part of that is how did you scale into that? What, where did you start? Cause I'm assuming like, I don't really know many people that just started with self-storage, they got into residential. And um, so I do want to hear a little bit about the journey of how you came to that and what made self-storage the asset class for you to go after.
0: Yeah. So the way we got into it was uh, residential. So we were flipping houses in DC and my, I lived on the block. My neighbor moved in next door. There was a vacant house in between us and uh, that neighbor next door turned into my business partner, Scott, and we started a company. And we started with that first flip in between us. And after that, we just kind of scaled, um, we were doing, we did four flips on just on that one block. And then we did other projects, condo kind of conversions, land development, things like that in Washington, D.C. But, you know, after a while we realized there's so much effort that goes into flipping a house, building a new house. And it's kind of like, you know, you're opening the door a lot and closing it. So you're doing a lot of settlement, a lot of transactions, a lot of things, you know, for the amount of effort you're doing. And the profit and the scalability of it all. And we also saw kind of the market turning, you know. So in 2017, you know, we did our last residential. Now, residential is still doing fine. <laughs> we you know very late here in 2019. Um, but, you know, we also kind of thought what asset class was recession resistant last uh, downturn and the downturn before. And if you look at how the asset class has performed over 20 years, there's two asset classes that stuck out as top performers during downturns, and that was medical office and self-storage. So medical office obviously is, you know, you still got to go to the doctor. So the doctor is still going to be able to pay their rent and they're still going to have their customers. Um, and then self-storage depends on life events. So, you know, whether you're upsizing or downsizing, you're going to have that. So that was kind of our journey into the asset class. We did sort of realized that, you know, this isn't all about wholesaling or flipping because, you know, the local RIAs say that there is so much more to this and it's not just multifamily either. And we just really didn't like that multifamily. We wanted to have control over the process. We, you know, we had personal bad experiences with property management groups. So we're like, what asset class can we be in that we have control over the whole process so we can do a really good job of it? And that was assets that were easy to manage, easy to maintain, and easy to evict and that and self storage, again, number one, right? It was good in the last downturn. It's, it meets those three criterias and we just learned as much as we could about the asset class and went into that asset class.
1: So that's awesome. So since you've went into that asset class, I know you're doing mobile homes as well. Are you completely <laughs> out now? all other things? Cause the big thing I see is, you know, having the focus, on a specific thing. So is that really where your company is focusing on right now is mobile home parks and storage units?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And storage is kind of the top priority at the moment. So we are looking a hundred percent at storage. The RV park thing kind of came along um, sort of circumstantial to looking at another deal that fell apart and the broker brought us an RV park that was, uh, I think it was like a 17 or an 18 cap when we were looking at it and we reverted it to a 42 or a 43%. Cap rate on purchase. And so we're like, man, this is, this is a pretty cool asset class. Um, and nobody's in it. You know, everybody's talking about mobile home parks. Everybody's talking about storage, multifamily, office, retail, shopping centers, people are doing all those asset classes. And so especially storage and multifamily you have cap rate compression, because you have lots of available financing. Everybody can get a loan on those assets. Everybody wants to own multifamily and sell storage. But RV parks, nobody's really there. So the lending environment is very difficult and the buyer pool is very difficult. So we have huge cash flow in those asset in that asset class. So we own a couple of RV parks um, uh, just over 200 units of RV parks in Texas and we're going to be expanding one of the parks by 100 units actually early to 2020. So we are going to have you know quite a bit of uh, uh, RV uh, park space in our portfolio. And that, that's really what drove us to us. And so think of it this way. I mean, you've got, you know, a hundred units of RV parks and this is long-term extended stay. There's different RV parks. This isn't like a campground you go to on the weekend. This is where people live and they pay anywhere from 600 to $900 in lot rent per month. So it's extremely high lot rent. And all you're really providing that person is uh, electric pedestal, um, uh, water and septic and maybe some internet. And some of our facilities, they pay for it, but in our case of them, they, um, they um, the tenant pays for it. So, and you have no maintenance, you have no obligation to the RVs. Uh, you're just renting the pad space. So the, the expense to gross income ratio is really low. We, you know, we're paying, I think our, our operating expense ratio is like 35%. So we're really collecting a lot of the revenue and it's uh, just a great asset class. And the other thing is, is there's not a lot of sophisticated operators in that space. So with our property management um, expertise and ability to sort of run our own assets, we can do these all over the place and really kind of have an upper hand. Um, especially when you're competing, basically everybody's a mom and pop operator in the space. So it's uh, it, it's just a kind of a niche, and nobody's talking about it, nobody's doing it. So then that's why the you can get a you can get a great deal on them. And um, you know I you know I don't it's not that we're trying to be trendsetters or anything, but you know we kind of look at. The ability of our team to run and manage and expand and, and do capex improvements on these, mixed with our ability to study a market and understand where the supply and demand is really going, and being able to raise the capital and not having any restrictions on private debt or equity—it's just a nice uh, setup for us um, to really, you know, fund cash flow. Because I think I think a lot of multifamily syndicators, when they're looking at getting a at buying an apartment building or raising funds to do that they don't realize that they're really not going to make any money on cash flow. There is no cash flow. When you're buying a six cap or a five and a half percent cap and you're raising money from investors and you're paying them a prep. Yeah. You might make your acquisition fee or you'll make some fees up front. But after that there's nothing until the end. So, but the thing about an RV park, you buy an RV park at a 15 or a 16% cap rate, you're going to have, you're going to hit your pref, and you're going to have cash flow. So you'll actually earn a distribution. You'll actually be getting your split on top, which has been very beneficial to the growth of our company. I've said a lot there. So.
1: Well, that's outstanding though. That was really interesting to me. So what, what, types, of, what types of deals are you looking at? Now you, you touched on, there's not a lot of sophisticated investors or operators, I'm sorry, in that realm. And I know a lot of the guys on the multifamily side, that's exactly where they find a lot of good deals is by the mom and pop operators who haven't done a good job for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They don't have the money to now do the deferred maintenance, so it turns into a good deal. They get a lot of seller finance type deals um, coming with investor cash, able to buy them out. Um, how are you finding these types of, of parks? And then my, my follow up question to that is now are you buying the RVs and then renting them out the spots, or are you just renting out the lots and they're bringing their own RVs in?
0: They're bringing their own RVs in.
1: Okay, cool.
0: easy to manage easy to evict easy to maintain right if we own a bunch of trailers (laughs) that's not easy to maintain um i mean it might be it might be you know you get a guy out there that knows what he's doing and he can fix up the stuff but you know we don't but then you got to have a guy to do that right and uh you know and then when he quits or moves on or can't work or something um you know then you don't have that guy anymore then you have a bunch of maintenance problems so we just you know we like that aspect of it um But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, finding these things, you know, you're looking for the, you know, depressed properties. We just look for good opportunities. I mean, we honestly don't really, I mean, the cap rate's great, but we don't really care about the cap rate. It's more about what you can do with it. I mean, when we bought our last um, RV or two RV parks ago, we, we didn't even really, I mean, if you looked at the cap rate on the actuals, you would have been like, oh, this isn't a 17 cap. This is like a you know, this is terrible. This is like a six or a 7% cap. But what we did was we figured out that the market, every other operator, every other facility was full. It was just, this one was so poorly managed that all we had to do was come in there, clean up the staff, you know, fire, hire, kick out bad tenants, kind of turn around the property. And our, and our pro forma on actuals was going to forma on what we could do with the property is was incredible. So we just got in there, saw the vision and, and went with it. Um, and that's, I think, really kind of important too. Is I think people get a lot of, you know, people get obsessed with cap rates. And it should, you know, I mean, you should pay for what it's actually doing. Uh, but sometimes it's more about an opportunity um, based on market demand. And that's something that we'll uh, kind of get our hands around.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I think when you're playing in the cap rates that are up in the double digits, you don't have to be as cautious with it. Whereas, like you're saying in the multifamily, somebody's getting a five or a six or a seven, and you're bringing in investment money and you're paying them a seven or an eight. You just did the whole thing for no money minus your acquisition fee. So I think that's a really good point. Uh, it's funny because you actually went, ah, it's, it's terrible, it's a seven. But I know people that are in bidding wars now, trying to get buildings in good areas that are at a seven cap. So it's interesting to see the difference there. I think that that's a really cool difference in some of the asset classes that you're finding versus what everybody else is going for. You're doing a little bit of the opposite and it's, it's leaving a lot of meat on the bone
0: absolutely yeah and 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 don't get me wrong I mean we've seen sub four cats in storage, so I mean storage is trading between you know five and six and a half cap in most markets you know good markets good you know either primary you know secondary maybe even tertiary markets that's where that's where it's trading, depending on the asset type and how big it is and how you know how well run it is and things like that but but yeah I mean storage it's you know we've never. We've never split the pref on storage. We've hit the pref for our investors, but you know, split on top is nothing. You, you know, it's really hard to do. And you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know how much uh, you know, kind of background you have in syndication, but I've even noticed what some syndicators are doing: are they're actually overraising the amount of money that they need on a project, and they're actually doing a distribution every quarter, or every month. Um, but really it's not a distribution. It's just a, it's a return of capital. So it looks like a distribution, but it's not a distribution. And I, I just kinda, I look at that and I go, wow. I mean, that's really, I mean, not only is the syndicator not making any money off the deal, but the passive investors aren't, aren't making off the deal while they're operating it. Now, when they sell, there could be a profit and a split and all that, but, but they get this check in the mail and they're, and I, I kind of looked into that a little bit more and I'm like, man, this isn't even a return on capital. It's a return of capital. And there's a huge difference. And I think, I don't think people are really realizing that. So it's not even, some of these deals aren't even cash flowing to investors. Now, again, it all depends on, that could still be a good deal. You just have to look at the business plan and see, Hey, how is this thing going to do when it sells? You know, if, if they're doing value add strategy or whatever, but you know, you're banking on the sale and, um, you know the return of capital thing kind of gets me a little bit. Yeah, I don't like it very much. You know, <laughs> so yeah. So RV parks, you know, never mind that. We're getting this. We're hitting the pref. Generally, I mean, you know, nothing's guaranteed, but we're hitting the trip to pref and we're getting the split on top. So that's kind of a nice. It's just it's just different. And you know, I think, you know, you can go take a crash course on mobile home parks. You can go to, You can go to. You know, pick pick what weekend course you want to go to on multifamily investing. They're everywhere you know, tons of Facebook groups, tons of this. And there's just, you know, just there's a lot of buyers and a lot of competition for the space. And we're just trying to look for the diamonds in the rough. And uh, we found that in the RV park world and in storage too, but that's, uh, you know, really kind of what's, what's been uh, beneficial to us.
1: That's outstanding, man. And now the, for people who are listening, there is a difference between an RV park and a mobile home park. Cause I think initially people are thinking like a trailer park, kind of, of thing that you walk, that you, you drive by in the areas that's got that bad stigma to it, which again is another point that people starting out, I think, are very concerned with I wouldn't live there, so I don't want to invest there. And it's the complete <laughs> wrong attitude because yes, I might not necessarily want to live in a trailer park, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't buy one or own one, just like some of the buildings or the houses. So um, are you having any issues when you go to raise capital and you tell your investors, hey, I'm raising capital for a storage unit? Because some of the times that I've talked to cities about or 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 building units, the the stigma that comes with that is they're very ugly and the city doesn't want those there. And then you have to show them that there's they're not all those big orange buildings that you see see everywhere. But our investors, sure. oh no, I don't want to invest in a storage park, or I'm sorry, in a in an RV park.
0: No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we haven't had any. We haven't. So I I will I will tell a funny story of about two years ago. So you know we were developing luxury condos in Washington D.C. Uh, that's a very kind of niche, um, you know, kind of sexier thing to do than buy RV parks. So when we made the hard shift from, you know, raising capital from building our uh, condos to an RV park in the middle of nowhere, Texas, um, there was some explaining to do. (laughs) So it was kind of like, okay, this is different. Uh, It definitely was a hard shift, but um and that first raise for the R V park was very difficult. It was um, a lot of explaining, conceptualizing, you know, showing what the demand was, showing what the opportunity was. But the last R V park that we had a capital raise for, we put together three million dollars in about four days. Um it was the it was one of the fastest uh um it was one of the fastest raises that we've ever done. Um and it's because the cash flow. And it's not a return of capital. It's none of these semantics. It's you're getting a distribution, <laughs> um, you know, return on capital, and you're getting um, a split, you know, at the end of the sale, and getting, um, you know, a pref and, and and all your money back at the end, um, hopefully, if the project goes as planned. Um, it's always a projection, of course. But that's, you know, that's basically, you know, I think what's made it so attractive is people are looking through a lot of these multifamily deals and looking through storage deals and yeah, you're going to get maybe a six to 8% coupon, you know, every, every quarter, right. You might be doing okay. But on the RV park investing, it's, it's that or more. And um, I think people go, wow, this is great. The other thing I wanted to bring up too is something called cost segregation and bonus depreciation. So multifamily, Family, a lot of your purchase price gets wrapped up into the buildings. And those go into 27 and a half your life. And they go they take very, very long to depreciate. So you're not really getting a lot of the depreciation. Then you have building contents and land improvements. Uh, and you can do cost segregation. And you know, usually you can deduct about twenty to thirty percent of the purchase price. And then you do bonus depreciation, which allows you to take twenty to thirty percent of the purchase price and depreciate everything in the first year. RV parks. It's like 70 to 90% of the purchase you can depreciate in the first year because there's no buildings. So there's no life entered into the longer uh, longer term life. Everything, contents and land improvement. So <laughs> a funny example is we paid 2.3 for one of our parks and the land value is $900. <laughs> so everything, <laughs> so there's a little office, you know, maybe a hundred grand or something but everything else goes into short term life and gets bonus depreciated. So not only do you have the high cash flow, but you also have no taxes to pay while you hold the investment because you have all that bonus depreciation to spread out over the life of the investment. And I know the follow on question to that is, well, yeah, Ryan, well, isn't there, isn't there recapture taxes? There absolutely is for any asset class, but that's deferred, you know, and it could be deferred for, The entire time that you're owning the asset to it sells and it's always paid at a flat 25% recapture rate. So you're still coming out way ahead without paying any taxes on the cash flow. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons to do it. And, you know, again, there's no, it's not easy to learn how to operate them. There's not a lot of property management companies out there. There's not a lot of education and training. I think there's like three books. And the one book I bought was pretty bad. And it was like $90, <laughs> um, you know, when we were learning this asset class, we just ordered every single book we could get our hands on on Amazon and there was one and it was really bad. It was like $90. It was really expensive, but I probably know that they're the only book out there on RV park investing. So uh, maybe we need to rewrite a book. I don't know, but uh, yeah, like
1: um, yeah. Nice. And so if these are actually considered automobiles, or they're considered property. You know sometimes with RVs there's a difference, right?
0: Yeah, these are personal property. I mean, these are, you know, their vehicles, you know, recreational vehicles that come in, usually their fifth wheels is pretty typical, but these are nice rigs. I mean, the, the, the tenants that we have in Texas are, you know, these are mostly energy and oil workers that are bringing in, um, you know, rigs that, uh, that are expensive. I mean, these guys are making good money. They're making 150 plus thousand dollars a year to work out in these harsh conditions. I mean, so the, some of these rigs, I mean with the truck and the trailer, it's like a quarter million. So it's not like these are just, yeah, I mean, these are, you know, brand new, you know, dually, you know, F three fifties, you know, I mean, these are nice trucks, you know, coming in, um, you know, or just, you know, higher end trucks with, with trailers that are all tricked out because problem is there's just no housing, you know, that no one's willing to build, you know, take the risk in building, you know, a bunch of single family homes in some of these areas. And so RV parks, our our way of life. So you kind of, kind of got to see it to believe it. And that's kind of how we got into it initially.
1: That's really cool. I like that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, in a housing shortage, but especially I think that you're in a great place where when funding starts to dry up a little bit, that's still a really good recession proof strategy to hedge your bets a little bit that you're probably not seeing the dips that you're going to see on a residential when the, when the market starts to turn.
0: Absolutely. I agree.
1: So what type of, what's the exit strategy? know I know you're raising money. I'm assuming you raise money per project. Um, and I'm sure there's investors that you have lined up for, for when those projects hit. But if you're going to raise money for an RV park, and I know you're looking at certain things, certain cash flow, obviously most of them sounds like they're cash flowing as soon as you purchase them, which is good. Now, what's, what's the strategy? Are you doing something like you said, you can add extra parcels on there? And then are you going to a bank and pulling a refinance out like you would not like a, a single family or multifamily strategy?
0: Yeah. So, um, most of these parks, we buy with cash. So, um, you know, when you, when you have a 16% cap rate, you've essentially got a 16% return on your money the day you buy it cash. Right. So, you know, you can find it. An, and, you know, if you think about, if you went with investors and you said, Hey, you know, I'm going to charge the project a hundred thousand dollars to close it. And then, and then the property is operating at a 16% cap rate. You can give your investors a 16% return, you know, thereabouts right off the bat, right? I mean, it'd be a little bit less than that because you take your feet, you kind of load your fees into the deal. But I mean, it's pretty easy to cash flow with that. So, um, you know, leverage, again, is a difficult thing. Uh, we've had very low success with getting loans. And, you know, the the problem with that is, you know, our company's size, you know, we, we don't really qualify for the SBA. But borrowers going to the SBA Uh, the SBA doesn't lend on housing. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, I can just get an SBA loan. They don't lend on housing. And also SBA loans takes like three months to close, four months, um, if you're lucky, right? And then some people say, well, you can do USDA loan um, and that would would suffice. And it has really long-term amortization. Plan on five to six months so, if you have a buyer or a seller of an RV park and you're going to them and you're writing your contract in a way, make sure if you're going for USDA financing or SBA financing, make sure that you're giving yourself like six months in the contract to get that taken care of. Um, now, if it's short term rentals, you can do SBA, but if it's long term housing like we have, you cannot do SBA because the SBA will not lend on a housing project. Um, huh. It has to be, yeah, it has to be uh, more than, I think it's like more than 50% of the park has to be on short term rentals. So that's, that's kind of a nuance. And you know, it's solid advice, because if you don't know that going in, you can waste a lot of time going down the SBA route to find out that you can't do it in the first place. So, um, you know, local banks will do it, they want low amortization, you know, they want 10 to 15 year amortization, which is not very attractive to cash flow, um, because there's not a lot to collateralize against. So what we've done is we've actually just raised our own debt. So if you go to an, your investor network and you say, hey, I want to raise 6 to 8% interest only, paid monthly, first position, personal guarantee or not, and you do a, your own fractionalized deed of trust, you can actually record a deed of trust and a promissory note with the county and against the property on title. And you can make your own, you could be your own bank on owning these things. And that's what we've done. Uh, we've actually, we don't have any banks that lend on these. We have our own in-house investor network that funds these and the investors love it because they're getting an 8% return, you know, interest only paid monthly and it comes every month and there's a lot of cash flow ahead of, you know, that they're ahead of because they're the debt holder. So just make sure you structure it right. You know, an attorney or a title company can help you write a deed of trust and a promissory note, but that's how we've been financing these things. Um, and, and then the equity obviously comes with cash.
1: So how, what types of terms are you structuring? Cause, uh, are they looking for a big payout in three, five, 10 years, something like that? Oh, and would that be a uh, refinance? Yeah. Move? Yeah.
0: So the equity, um, no, we don't really, there, there are triggers that if we did refi, we would owe them, you know, a certain amount of money at, on the refi, but really, you know, the, the, the refi, um, is not really desirable because I we want to keep low leverage on these. I mean, we're usually only leveraging them 20 to 30 percent. And that's another thing to a passive investor. It's like I have all this cash flow and I don't the property isn't highly leveraged. You know, that some of these multifamily deals are very highly leveraged. So if you can't make payments, you could lose that asset very quickly. So I think that's kind of really important to note is like, we're only, you know, I think on one property, we've got a million dollar loan on a five and a half million dollar property. So we're, we're like way under leveraged. Yeah. So and another property we're closing on is um, we picked up for two point, well, we bought the property already. We picked it up for 2.3. We're going to do about a million dollar loan to expand it. So, you know, and the property will be worth, you know, I don't know, more than that, you know, five plus million. I can't remember the exact value it was supposed to be um, when it sells. So, Really, the plan is high cash flow, you know, for five to ten years, depending on the deal, and then when we sell, they share in the proceeds of the sale, you know, just like a multifamily deal that we do a split when the when the property sells. So they get some upside on the sale, and then they get the cash flow along the way.
1: So, um, how many investors do you have on an average project? Uh, for
0: every million dollars we raise, we usually have about ten investors. Okay. So we'll have we'll have about you know you know, we'll have most of our investors, our minimums are 50,000. So most of our investors invest 50, but there's some that do like 500 or 250 or 200. So, you know, kind of makes an average about a hundred thousand per person typically. So, yeah, we just raised 3 million for the RV park. And, um, you know, I think there's about 32 investors or something
1: like that. So it's keeping with the average. That's awesome, and I can't believe the, the low loan to value you're in on those. So, Again, if you have a nervous investor and they really, something happens, the market's not going to dip that you're going to lose 60, 70%. And it's not going to happen fast like it would with a stock that you're going to be broke overnight. Like You said if you really needed to, something terrible happened. You could fire sell that off at 50 cents in the value to another investor and still make all the money back and probably still put 10, 15, 20% in your pocket. That's That's pretty crazy. You're making me want to go do that now. <laughs>
0: Well, and if you think about it too, I mean, from an investor standpoint, this is direct feedback I've got, you know, we have an RV park that's been, um, distributing 17% to our investors and we've owned it for a couple of years. So, I mean, he's gotten back 34% of his capital. So, I mean, and it's not a return on, it's a return or or it's not a return of a return on. So he's still, we still owe him his 50 plus he's made 34% on top of that. So if you think about it from a risk perspective, I mean, if the whole thing fell apart, he's got 34% of his money back in his pocket. Um, you know, so even like you said, if we had to fire sale or if we lost a lot of occupancy, our economic occupancy on some of these is like 20% to to hit, to break even or or return a little profit. So when you think about it, multifamily, I mean, you've gotta be up in the 70s and the 80s on some of these multifamily deals. And you've got to be hitting your rents and hoping that, you know, and again, I'm not, you know, I'm invested in multifamily. I don't think multi, I think multifamily is great. So don't confuse this with being multifamily, being bad. It's just different. And, you know, and I think we're always, you know, in this market, we're all looking for yield as it becomes, you know, a very strong seller's market Uh, prices are going up. Cap rates are going down. Lending environment is crazy. It's easier to find loans. Not, you know, I've seen, 10 year interest, only assumable loans coming out of multifamily. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I mean, three and a half, you know, 3.75% interest. It's really, that's great. And you know, you can really do a lot of good stuff and then know that you've got that fixed interest rate in um, an assumability. So you can pass that, that deal off to somebody else and they have good loan terms now. So there's, I mean, multifamily is a great investment, but this is just a, it's a different thing that not a lot of syndicators are doing. Not a lot of people in the space, and so that creates an opportunity.
1: So it's awesome, man! I love it. That's that's what keeps you in there for the long, long ball. I mean, thinking outside of the box, diversifying—I think it's really smart. Good, good job, man. Yeah, the, thanks. Yeah. The other class you're doing is a lot is uh, storage units. So storage units are a thing I see everywhere. I don't know a ton about them. Um, my only experience with them, and then you can kind of tell me—you know—branch off from there done a little bit different, but I had an apartment building I already owned, and there was some some land in front of it. So what we were trying to do was figure out what could we do with the land in front of the apartment building, and it was an area that was very high military, high rentals. So I started seeing that anything that wasn't an apartment building or basically a fast food place or a bank was a storage facility. So I started going around to the different storage facilities and asking them how much of an occupant there. Most of them were full or almost full, and then I said, okay, well... Would the owner be interested in potentially buying more or buying land that's already been entitled to build more storage units? And the plan was going to be to have the city approve that and then I was gonna sell off the plan. But that was part of what I was looking for for just what could this be? As Jared, you met he was he was helping me with that. And we were just asking those questions of what could this be? And it looked like, you know, military towns, rental towns were really, really big for storage units, which I'm sure there's thousands of other ones. Those types of things, are when I started hearing the conversations of, well, we'd be interested in them, but they can't look a certain way because we don't want them to look ugly. And when I realized how popular they were, and I started really looking out for them, almost like when you buy a car and then everybody has the car, I did see how they're snuck in there in a lot of these cities where I wouldn't have even noticed them because they're not the big bright, bright orange, what is it, storage for right. you or whatever those ones are. So, Public. Um, yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. So talk, talk a little bit about that. And, uh yeah so
0: yeah so okay so there's a lot of different variations here so results may vary jurisdictions may vary so when we buy an existing facility there's no concern because it's there right now there are caveats to that you've got to be really careful in your due diligence you may find that in order to expand the facility you've got to go through like a site development plan approval and bond landscaping and do architectural design review and that might require you to uplift your whole property. You may have to do architectural features on what exists there now. So you may have to spend money on right-of-way improvements or money on um, architectural features or landscaping or anything like that, right? So it's, it depends. Some jurisdictions are like, yeah, here's a building permit, go build it. And you can do slab-on-grade metal buildings overnight, right? Um, and, and everything in between. Some uh, uh, you know cities don't even have a zoning for storage so you have to get special use permit or you have to get reason to do the do the storage um, and go through strict design review requirement public notices public hearing things like that and you have the gamut right so it just depends on where you are so in your particular case if the city required you to go through some type of specific design review that can be very costly to you so again when you're looking at these properties and you're like wow this seller is telling me that I can buy this storage facility and double the size. We have a facility like that in um, Colorado. And it's funny because the seller is an older gentleman. He's built it, you know, back in the seventies with his son and he sold it to us. And he, and he said to us, and you know, he's in his eighties and really nice guy. And you know, he says, Oh yeah, I was down to the city not too long ago. And they said that I could expand my facility, no problem. And we're like, Oh great. Do you have any paperwork? And it was from 1994 and uh it was like oh okay yeah a couple of years ago that was like yeah okay. 20 years ago <laughs> over 20 years ago and things have changed since then right so these cities have very strict um guidelines and it's very difficult so you know if you're basing your numbers on being able to expand you know consider making the contract depending on, dep- dependent on getting building permits or rezoning or approvals because you'll spend a lot of heartache again don't rush to a bad deal because then you might be clawing your way out of it. You know the theory. It's kind of like the um, the analogy is like burning your boats. There's that Chinese warrior who would always, you know, sail his boats in, and then he would burn the boats. So you'd either have to win your battle or no retreat, right? So when you buy that property, you are stuck with it. So in your case, you're kind of in a good advantage because you can risk some money and some entitlements and some permit fees. You already own the property, you're satisfied with the multifamily, and it's just a bonus to put storage out there. That's a different situation, but you know, you could spend anywhere from $25,000 to a half a million dollars to get your entitlements. Um, and we've seen that range, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. On one of our properties, uh, we're building a ground up development in just outside of Seattle, is 700000 in soft costs, and that's not bad actually uh, for the size of facility that we're building. So you really have to know what you're getting into and know, you know, what it is. And it's all, it all starts with a civil engineer. I think we talked about that in my speech is, you know, when we, you know, in Maui, we talked about that, like, Hey, you got a property and the seller says, Oh, I can, yeah, you can expand it. Oh, I talk to the city and this and that. That's, that's unverified information. That's, that's theoretical at this point. Right. So when you go verify it, you know, you want to get a licensed engineer to look at your site and go hey I looked at your site and there's easements all over it and you can't build anything <laughs> you know um or go to and the other thing that i made sure everybody took away was you know that's great that there is a clean site and you can build to your heart's content but there's no demand in the market so you can go build all that spend millions of dollars adding onto your facility and <laughs> nobody's going to come fill it up because there's no demand in the market right so you're, you're those two things that you really got to have a handle on or you could be signing up for millions of dollars on a loan and have no way to pay it. And so again, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time getting on airplanes, flying to different markets, looking at deals to find out those things. And it's really frustrating, especially when you spend, you know, $1,500 for a due diligence trip, you know, you get on an airplane, hotel, time, taxis, Ubers, rental cars, whatever it might be and time on the road. And then you find out that when you go there, you can't do what you want to do so we've really cleaned up our processes so we don't have to even get on an airplane we can we can kind of vet that out before we have to leave town um to know that like hey we've done our due diligence we've looked at our rent roll we've saw how we're going to build this thing we can we can see that the civil has kind of signed off on it okay now it's time to get on a you know get on a transportation and go because all of our facilities with the exception of the one in Grotto, are all, all out of town so we're managing this a hundred percent remotely
1: man. I agree 100%. I see a lot of investors, they start doing a lot of traveling and a lot of due diligence, spending a lot of money, spending a lot of time, spending a lot of travel, only to find that they don't even have a deal. And in a lot of these cases, with the age that we're in with technology and information at our fingertips and Skype and FaceTime and all these different things, you can get a lot of info, not necessarily to know that you have a deal, but to save yourself a lot of that travel and a lot of that time to figure out, is this actually worth Getting on a plane, looking at this apartment building, look on a single family home, I, I wouldn't even bother going to see them before I buy them anymore. Right. But as you're getting into bigger asset classes like multifamily, even, I'll get 90% through the due diligence process till I say, okay, now I'll we'll even think about going out there because I'm 90% sure I have a deal. So I really like that because that was another thing I was gonna ask, is the diligence process there?
0: Yeah. So we have a five hundred and forty point due diligence checklist. And I'm happy to, to share that with your listeners. So just let me know and I'll send you, uh, you know, I'll send whoever inquires, you know, send me an email and I'll send you a copy of it.
1: Um, I, see, I thought you were making a joke like I'll go through it point by point right now.
0: <laughs> no, we do. I mean, we, I mean, oh yeah, not right now. <laughs> It'll take yeah. us all day, uh, maybe even longer. But um, yeah, so I mean, we like, we just bought a um, 1100 or we have a, we're just almost closing on an 1100 unit storage facility. And we went through every single door, every single one. And this facility was just built. So we had to open up every door and annotate, do we have a tenant here or not? You know, this one says it, it does, does it, or does it not? We had to verify everything. So if you think this is just easy, laid back, passive, you're dead wrong. I mean, everybody thinks that this is like, you get into this so you can be passive and spend all this time with your family when you first get into this you don't spend any time with your family, you're, you're working your butt off. And if you, you know, if you really want to be successful in it, I mean, you're making sacrifices for at least, you know, three to five years, if you really want to do this and do this all the way. Um, and you know, it, 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 there's a lot of disappointment. You could even go through a whole due diligence process and the deal could fail. So, you know, this isn't easy. This isn't something that, you know, you hear about the gurus talk about, right. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging business to do well. And you just got to be prepared for failure. And I think that's really been the biggest takeaway over the last, you know, four years or five years we've been, you know, really at this is, um, you know, there's just times it doesn't work and you've got to be, you got to be triggered to say, no, you know, that's the thing. It's like, everybody wants to do every deal, especially when it's in their backyard. Oh, I found this storage facility that's for sale in my backyard. I, if it was our deal, I'd be like, well, there's probably about a 0.0001% chance it's going to work out. Um, So we do, so we do the rent roll. We look at the rent roll. We see who the owner is, um, you know, actually, um, you know, who's actually paying and who is actually not. We verify the financials. Um, I'll give you a really, really hilarious example. We underwrote a facility that was 1,070 units, right? So the owner gave us data information, you know, and it's worth this much because it's got, you know, it's 1,007 units. When we went there, we found out that there was an 1106 units. So there was 36 more units than the seller even knew about because we actually went and counted the doors. So what we figured out was we had a more valuable facility than we negotiated and put under contract. So, you know, it, it, it's a crazy what you find in due diligence and going there to see it is so important. And I agree with you. I have a single family home that I bought that I've never even been to. Right. And it's no big deal. I mean, you kind of get the inspection, report, kind of get a feel for the property, look at comps, no big deal. But for these, especially when I have investor capital behind us, we spend a lot of time at the properties. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So you, you hit a you hit on another thing there that I was gonna close it off with, but I, I do have two more questions. I don't want to take up your whole day. Yeah. I appreciate the time.
0: But, <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. You
1: know, I, I always am very interested in like what you just said. People go, oh, I want to do that. I'm going to be rich. I want to be able to travel to Maui like Ryan does. But you (laughs) say it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. It's going to take a lot of hard work. There's going to be a lot of disappointments. But at the end of the day, look what you've built. Look what you put in place. You have that relationship with people that trust you with their money. You have cash flow. You have all that experience. You've created a niche market for yourself. So I like hearing a little bit about the backstory or some advice you can give people starting out. Because there is really no get rich quick in this business. To get rich, slow business, you have to have thick skin. You have to have patience. You have to take a lot of beatings. So how did you get yourself through the, that first one or two or three years? And more importantly, uh, pretty new baby what well, your baby's under two, right? You're
0: yeah. Uh, she turns three in January and then we have a fit that's due in uh, two weeks. <laughs> a new baby boy in two weeks. So
1: congratulations. Yeah. From yeah to thanks. I your kids in, <laughs> in hawaii but you know people starting out you know you have families how are you finding that balance between putting the time in raising millions of dollars running a construction company property management asset classes partners and being a dad and being a husband and you know probably having some private time and being you and i mean you got a great head of hair on so you're obviously not super stressed, you, know? But, you know there's I, some gray I think hairs that, here I think you hide them well you wear them nicely <laughs>
0: No, I, it's, a great, it's a great question. And honestly, you know, it's easy to be on Instagram and Facebook and social media and look like you're just living your best life. And um, this is a super rewarding business. And there's all these like little rewarding moments that make it worth it. And you just have to recognize when you're having one, you know, like going and, you know, getting invited to speak in Maui was like such a rewarding thing to do, you know, and um, it was also very stressful because we still had a crap load of work to do. So, you know, I was, I was, I was up in the lobby, you know, at 4 a.m. and, um, you know, attending to the East Coast or the West Coast, I guess, uh, matters and getting the day done because, you know, 4 a.m. in Hawaii, it's, you know, the day's already going on, you know, in the Continental. So, um, you know, that, but, you know, the other thing is I didn't quit my, my full-time job right away. You know, you got to put food on the table, you got to serve your family, um, and you know, and you got to work with good people. I mean, that's really what it comes down to get the bad people out of your life, work with only good people. Um, you know, you can spend a lot of time training or working with somebody that's just not a good fit or doing what you want to do. And here's the thing, me and Scott, I, we work really well together. We disagree a lot and we don't get a, you know, we, not everything is, is perfect, Right. And I think that's what makes us stronger is that, you know, I have a really different personality than he does half the time, you know, most of the time. Right. Um, and, th- and we disagree on stuff. And I- that's what makes us better. Cause he's challenging what I'm challenging. And he's putting in the work and I'm putting in the work. So it's like, we have a good, you know, if you have a par- partnership, um, you know, a good partnership or good people with you, that really makes a di- big difference uh, because you're not chasing them around and wondering what they're doing and all that. Right. They're just self self, you know, they're self-sufficient self-starting, uh, entrepreneurial, and they bring a lot to your table. If they're not doing that, don't work with people like that. Don't bring value to your, um, to your life. And, you know, I always say that, you know, people are like, Oh, I'm a self-made man. I've done this. You're, nobody's self-made. I, you know, I, there's always somebody who, you know, maybe they're listening to this like a podcast and they get inspired or, you know, like get your environment right. You know, surround yourself with people who are doing this, who can help you learn, and recognize that you're still learning from other people to help you know position yourself for success. And I think that's really um, you know that's really important to be going through this with somebody else because it's very lonely being an entrepreneur. And I and I love having partners. I love having investors. I love having uh, business partners because it helps me kind of you know deploy the things that I want to do and know that I've got a team that's supportive of the overall concept. And I think that's just been a huge difference in, in being successful versus not
1: great answer, man. I, I agree. You know, you, you, the money's not worth it for the toxicity, toxic, toxicity of having bad people in your life. So I 100% think yeah. that. And and you, your, your mantra of the three things you look for in good properties, like easy to manage, <laughs> easy to, ev- I feel like your parties have to be the same way. You know, you want <laughs> to well, come that. up with that.
0: Yeah. Scott came up with that and I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, we come up to things with the team, but Scott came up with that. And it's like, you know, at first I was like, ah, whatever, man. All these guys are making big money in multifamily. Then I realized later on, I'm like, you know what this, I'm really glad I'm in this easy to manage, easy to evict, easy to maintain. Cause I do not. I mean, you know, if we're going to be putting our stamp as a project property management company on a multifamily, that's a lot of work. I mean, I, you know, I'm selling all my single families. I've got two sold. I got one left um, to sell. And um, I tell you what, man, I've spent more time and effort on one property than I have an entire like 130 unit storage facility. Um, I mean, and it's because, I mean, it's just nice to have everything wrapped up into our company and then have teams and to sort of work through all that stuff versus having to deal with, you know, a bad property management company or, you know, having to manage it yourself and just always, there's always something wrong with the house, you know, and it was supposed to be turnkey and it was supposed to be, you know, do nothing. And you know, it's like, yeah, it's turnkey, but you're not making any money because there's repairs and things happening all the time. And the property management company is taking all your profit. So I just like that alignment. Um, and you know, those three operating principles allow us to do the things that we want to do with the business. So, um, you know, I always tell people, you know, get your investment thesis, right. Make sure that you're putting together something that works for your lifestyle. Um, and then just endlessly pursue it and, and let the disappointment, you know, kind of come up front. You know, that's kind of, I think really important.
1: Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, before I let you go Walk through just some of the numbers on some of the storage unit projects, or so just a storage unit project you're working on, so people can really see in in financial sure. what those look like.
0: Sure. Uh, you mean like uh, kind of like what we buy them for, what we put into them, what we sell them for?
1: Okay. And so, what, what you make on a you know on a monthly basis? What those look like per door? Just you know the, the basic financials of them.
0: Yeah. So they're all a little bit different. Um, I'll give an example of one, uh, $6 million purchase. Uh, we're going to add 20,000 square feet to it. That's going to be about a million dollars, about 50 bucks a square foot to build all single story climate controlled. Um, so we're 7 million in there. Um, and then we are, you know, tranching a uh, quarter million dollars of operating reserves. That's just a oopsie rainy day fund. Uh, Then we earn about $250,000 in fees uh, for buying the facility, being the project manager. That's kind of our our cut. Uh, So our total project costs on that are about 7.5 million. The property cash flow is from day one. And I think the investors are earning an 8% return. And we've been able to achieve that on a quarterly basis. So that's good. So the investors, um, we raised $2.3 million. So if you take 2.3 million times 8%, whatever that is, I'm not gonna do math in public. (laughs) Um, That's how much the property is earning in a return. And it all goes to the investors because they get an 8% preferred rate of return before we get a split. We own 50% of the deal. And we project that we'll sell that property for somewhere around 10.2 million in five years. That's pretty good. That's pretty good memory of numbers. that facility is about um I think it's just over seven hundred and fifty units. Uh we're gonna add more units to it and um take it through its development and lease up.
1: That's awesome, man. Those are big numbers right there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. makes
1: it worth putting the two or three years into when you're selling them in five years for ten and a half million dollars.
0: Yep. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely worth it. Um it's definitely a, h- a lot of hard work, but you know, once you start to get an acquisitions plan in place, then you can kind of see how these line up, right? So we put um, uh, four projects in our portfolio in 2018. Uh, we'll put five in our portfolio in 2019. Um, you know, 2020 we're right out of the gates. I think we already have some LOIs out, some contracts out. So maybe we'll put six or seven in our portfolio in 2020. Uh, we want to, and then you know, if you know, the idea is you have a disposition you know, every year. So you're selling a property every year, you're bringing on five, you're selling one, you're bringing on five, you're selling one. So you're making your fees as an operator uh, to run your business on the syndication, but then you're, you know, you're, you're making your money on the backside when the property sells. Um, And that's sort of the the flow that you get into that allows you to pay your people and your staff uh, for doing the work throughout the project. And then, um, you know, make kind of a bigger payday at the end of the project when it sells. So the the first few years are your challenge, right? Because you don't have a whole lot of fees coming in and you're looking for deals and you're not finding anything that you want to buy. Once you sort of get your rhythm and your systems down, that's when it really starts to snowball. And I think a lot of people look at our company and they say, where did you guys come from? And, you know, how did you grow so fast? And it's like, well, we've been doing a lot of stuff around the coffee table at home, (laughs) you know, for the last, you know, three, four years, a lot of failure, a lot of research, a lot of studying. Uh, Now that we have a structure, it's we're experiencing quite a chasm of growth because we have systems in place to sort of handle the, you know, that we have the infrastructure to sort of handle what's happening right now. And I think that's what's really Um, helping us succeed. So a lot of a lot of time spent, um, you know, not doing, you know, not making any money and not, you know, having some real big wins. So
1: if you guys are getting anything from the podcast and some of the great knowledge and tips that the guests are sharing, please take a minute and leave a review on iTunes or any of your platforms with some stars and some comments, helping spread the promotion and spread some visibility for the podcast, for the guests, and for the knowledge so we can continue to do this. it only take a minute. I appreciate it if you guys could take the time. It would go a very, very long way. Again, leave a review on iTunes. Start to share. Start to spread the word. I really would appreciate it if you're getting anything out of this. Thank you man, I think that that's super impressive. I think what you're doing is awesome. And you know, that's the whole thing, man. It's investing. In it. You know, everybody says they want to do it, but few are really prepared to sacrifice for a couple of years, and the way I see it is those two or three years, if you're putting all that time into the background, maybe you're not making a ton of money. Maybe you're not the best quality of life because you're sacrificing, but sacrificing those couple of years opens up all those doors versus just accepting a nine to five and working for somebody for a comfortable salary, you set your ceiling and you're pretty much going to stay at it. You know, I feel like that hope and that potential is what you chase after. And I think what you're doing is outstanding, man. So I really appreciate you sharing it. And for people listening, if they're saying, well, I'd like to do self storage or I'd like to do RV parts, but now I have to worry about the construction and the raising capital and the SEC regulatory property management and all these different things and putting out offers and LOIs. It's yes, you can figure out how to do all those things or, that's exactly why you're paid for what you do. And I'm sure that's why investors are happy to give you money and trust you because you know what you're doing and you do what you're saying to say what you do. So for people listening that are, are looking to get in touch with you, invest with you, learn more about your projects, get your due diligence checklist, whatever it may be. Um, talk a little bit about the different channels of ways that people can work with you and how they can find you.
0: Yeah. So our website is Spartan investors.com. So S P A S P A R T A N hyphen investors.com. That's our website. We have an intake form on there that they can fill out and they'll get added to our investor distribution, set up a call. I do an investor consultation with, with all of our investors to get to know them first before they can invest. And then we also have uh, my email, which is Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at Spartan-Investors.com. And those are those are the two best ways to get a hold. And um, yeah, if you want to send me an email, the Ryan at Spartan-Investors.com, I'll send you our due diligence tracker or... Information on our upcoming projects. We also have a newsletter that we do so we can you can we can give you our newsletter and Our newsletter talks about our team's growth. It talks about markets. It talks about storage Talks about how our projects are doing. It talks about where we're looking. You know, we always have videos Uh, We also have a youtube channel that I think is really valuable. It's it's, uh, We do uh, an investor webinar every month and we record it put it up on our youtube channel we also do property tours and meet the team um, and so our YouTube channel is Spartan Investment Group. And if you just Google Spartan Investment Group on YouTube, you'll find all of our videos. Like we just did a uh, with Toby Mathis from Anderson Advisors. Uh, we went through how a tax return looks uh, for uh, a syndication. I know that sounds really boring, but it's like really <laughs> exciting for, <laughs> for, for me um, because we went through and we show, we show our investors real live tax return from an RV park, how the cash flow comes in how we depreciated, how to read a K-1, how to understand where the money goes and make it interesting. So we actually try to make it a little bit fun. And, you know, we did another uh, webinar on how to do due diligence on an investment or an operator that you're about to syndicate with. We talked about how to set up solo 401ks and IRAs with a CEO of a uh, retirement account company and a bunch of other webinars. We do one every single month. So check out.
1: That's yeah. awesome, man. And, and I'll take all those uh, links and I'll put them in the show notes. So if people, okay, listen, great. they want something to click on, I'll give them all your contact info in there. And I'm 100% going to subscribe to the YouTube channel. That sounds extremely yes. valuable. I appreciate it, man.
0: Uh, great. Yeah,
1: thank talks, you so much. Mr. Ryan Gibson, uh, I, I literally could have gone on tangents in 10 different directions <laughs> for a couple of hours on all the different things you talked about. My voice gave out on me a little bit today, so I apologize for the this But um, I thought that that was really interesting, man. I think what you're doing One's very unique. I was really excited to talk to you. I had a great time meeting you in in Maui. Um, Final thoughts for any listeners, anything you want to leave out there in the the podcast world?
0: Yeah, if you want to learn more about storage, head to the Self Storage Association. Um, That's an association that organizes um, self-storage education and other operators and things. There's also the Inside Self Storage, which is another storage association. So if you want to learn about how to do self storage or more more about investing in self storage. Those are two great organizations that a have a local conference in your area once a year, typically. And they also have the national conferences in the spring and the fall, usually in Las Vegas and Florida. So.
1: Awesome. Great info. So I really appreciate you being a guest in the A game podcast and you absolutely bring your A game. So it was a pleasure for for me to meet you and to interview you. And I hope to have you on again and let you, let me know if there's anything I can do for you in the future.
0: Great. Thanks, Nick.
1: Have a great day. Have a great holiday, and and, uh, congrats on the new baby. I hope everything goes outstanding, (laughs) and uh, I look forward to hearing more about your journey, man. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks. Talk to
1: you soon. Brian Gibson, ladies and gentlemen. Ever wanted to play the drums, or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the Tri-State Area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, the Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D R U M M E R to the number 833-482-0167. Again, text DRUMMER to 833-482-0167 for your free drum lesson.